Hey, welcome to In The Shift, a podcast for when life and faith go off script. My name is Michael Frost, and welcome in, one and all, to another episode of the In The Shift podcast. And would you know it, because an episode of this comes out every two weeks, and because this is episode number 27, then through my deductive power of maths and also the amazing power of looking at a calendar, I have figured out that it's been one year since the launch of the podcast. So yes, we made it, made it through a year. Uh, And it's been a fun year for me. It's been somewhat of an experiment in in many cases because I really didn't know whether this was going to be something I just forced my closest friends to listen to and and then that's about as far as it went or whether it would find its way out into the world. And so, you know, I have been in fact encouraged by the numbers of people tuning in and finding the conversations and the content to be helpful along your journey, wherever you might be up to in that, whether you are someone who's are perhaps not really particularly engaged in religion or Christianity at all, or maybe someone who used to be and doesn't know what to do with it anymore, or maybe someone who still very much is deeply immersed but just has some questions you're trying to wrestle with. Uh, wherever you find yourself in that process, I'm glad you've stumbled across this little podcast and uh, and listening in to the conversation. Uh, you know, I know there are lots of things, I suppose, out there to take your attention, and plenty of podcasts and plenty of books and whatever else. Netflix, (laughs) to watch, to listen to, to enjoy. Um, And so the fact that you tune into this and find my small contribution worth listening to, you know, is very meaningful to me. And and it's been, you know, such an interesting journey in many respects. One of the things that some people have commented on, especially perhaps those who listen from my part of the world, New Zealand and Australia, just over the ditch, um... Some people have have just given the feedback that it's actually nice to have someone talking about some of these issues and these conversations who isn't speaking with a North American accent or from the North American context. Not that there's anything wrong with that, of course. Uh, Hello to my North American listeners. Um, But I guess some people from down this part of the world have found that, you know, so much content, regardless of the media or the format or even the topic, is, is kind of produced from out of North America. And so... Some people have found it nice to tune in and hear a different accent, or for them, maybe hear a more familiar accent, or uh, hearing from some in the States who have found a a different take on things from a different angle, perhaps uh, useful in a different kind of way. Um, And so that's kind of cool. And, you know, I don't really know how people bump into the podcast other than my sort of lame attempt at social media promotion. So I don't know how you bumped into this, but however you did, it's kind of cool. Um, I'm kind of, I think I'm generally a bit poor at self-promotion, which I kind of make a bit of a joke out of on the podcast because perhaps that's the only way to deal with it. Um, but it's, perhaps it's my, my relationship with promoting what it is that I do here is a funny one because I know that I need to, um, but, but I also really hate it when things like this turn into massive self-promoting machines to build personal brands and stuff, you know, and that so easily happens with this kind of project. So I, for the most part, relied actually a lot on word of mouth, which is cool. And then that's perhaps extra cool because for many people uh, who listen along, you don't actually tell anyone you're listening because maybe maybe that might not be received so well by those close to you. And so somehow, still, this little podcast finds its way to spread. So... So that's good fun. I'm looking forward to getting into the conversations that will come up in the upcoming months and, and, and the year. And of course, if you want to be a part of helping to influence where those conversations head in the direction that we go, you can jump onto Patreon and sign up to support the podcast. 
good one. All right then, enough of all of that, enough of that self-indulgent chit-chat about my one-year anniversary of In The Shift. Uh, let's get on to talking about science and evolution and monkeys and the Bible and all of that kind of stuff. If you listened to the previous episode, you'll know that I talked a bit about what I deemed to be an unnecessary tension between science and religion. And I've been suggesting, I guess, that if religion sets itself up as if science is the enemy of some kind, then it's actually not worth very much as a religious system. Because religion that's kind of healthy for us, I think, needs to be open to truth, should be fascinated, in fact, by truth wherever we bump into it. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that science answers all of the questions that we have about life and meaning and humanness. But it does suggest that if science invites us to see something about the nature of reality, we should be open to it. And not just open to it, actually it can become an important conversation partner in talking about belief and faith and spirituality and about what it means to be human and about the nature of the universe and so on. So I want to continue that conversation in this episode, but more specifically in relation to the topic of evolution, as I mentioned last time. And perhaps, you know, nowhere does the science-religion tension play out more than in this conversation, in particular uh, evolution and Christianity uh, and certain streams of Christianity. Uh, for many Christians, you know, um, prior to the theory of evolution emerging, it was earthly creatures, and especially human beings and our origins, that, the, that were kind of the final ace in the hand, if you like, for uh, coming to things that science couldn't explain. God must be real, because otherwise, how did we get here? You know, that's perhaps an understandable stance to take, especially uh, during the age of modernity and the enlightenment and science and rationality and reason, you know, people of religion who are feeling threatened by that shift and change could at least say, well, yeah, but how did we get here? And your science can't explain that. And then the theory of evolution comes along and many of a certain type of Christian faith interpreted this and probably continued to interpret this kind of whole notion of evolution as an explanation for our origins as something that's set up as an opponent of Christianity specifically and perhaps belief in God more generally. So while, yes, for many of people of faith, this is not an issue at all, uh, there are still significant chunks of Christians, for example, who resist any kind of acceptance of evolutionary theory, uh, or perhaps if they accept it on some kind of micro level, you know, oh yes, there can be small change, but at a macro level, still really struggle with that idea. And will in fact argue that perhaps it goes against the Bible and therefore against the truth that's been revealed to us by God. And then if we accept evolution, then obviously you're essentially denying the Bible and then probably on the evil path to atheism or something like that. So what do we do with this conversation? Are there things in the Bible that actually don't allow Christians to accept evolutionary theory? Do Christians have to resist the claim that we have a common ancestor with the apes? And if not, then what insight does evolutionary theory actually give us into what it means to be human? And how can this help us understand faith and spirituality and some of our fundamental struggles and opportunities and insights as human creatures? So, this is episode 27 of In The Shift. Let's get into it. Okay, so we're going to get into this conversation about evolution, the Bible, Christianity, and what this all means. And we're going to do this in two parts. So we're going to uh, talk mostly about evolution and versus the Bible and whether we can reconcile those things today. And then in the next episode in particular, going to talk more about the sense of 
how this actually, how grappling with evolutionary theory actually helps us to understand humanness itself and therefore how faith and spirituality can kind of meet us and actually be an ally and a partner to us in our own growth and development as human beings. So if we, if we peel back to what I was saying before the break, uh, before, if you can call that a break, that little musical interlude, let's call it a break. It sounds like I've got ads or something. That's great. I love. Before the break, we were talking about um, how Christians have a tendency to see uh, human creatures as special. You know, so Christianity in particular had long held this view that creation was complete, really, from the beginning. So, if you think about the Christian tradition, even those who didn't necessarily hold to Genesis one in- incredibly literally, took it more analogically, didn't have a scientific theory to offer an alternative, really. And so the the kind of assumption for many was that God created the world in some kind of whole sense at the beginning. And then that human beings are the highlight of this creation. They are the climax of this story. And so humans are um, special, unique, distinctly created as this kind of supernatural act of God. So in 1859, Charles Darwin's The Origin of Species comes along. And this kind of claim of the church comes under real serious and sustained scrutiny. You know, this idea that human beings are this unique supernatural creation, uh, distinct and special with some kind of authority and dominion over the world. And yet here comes Darwin saying, and, and then the evolutionists that come after Darwin saying that our origins are in fact progressive and linear. In other words, humans are actually in continuity with the rest of creatures. And this is really threatening, and I think maybe this gets to the heart, or maybe even more than do we believe the Bible or not, uh, or how do we interpret the Bible, this idea that human beings are now related to other creatures, that human beings have themselves evolved from the same ancestors as the apes that we see in the world. For some people who have seen human beings as this special, unique, distinct, supernatural creation, that's, you know, that's a threatening and challenging thought to get your head around. Because in some sense, with evolutionary theory, we become one of them, you know, the animals that we'd always treated as these kind of disposable commodities uh, or resources. And, you know, so so out of this and, and along with a certain kind of reading of some of the texts in the Bible... There's this desire, especially amongst certain streams of, I guess, more conservative Christianity, uh, desire to resist these scientific claims of Darwin and other evolutionists and and set up this opposition, oppositional relationship between evolutionary theory and Christian faith. And so you end up with these kind of binary positions. Uh, and, and some scientists have reacted back against conservative Christianity in this process as well. And so you end up with... Two, two possible scenarios for people. One, you believe the Bible, which means you believe in God, which means you believe, and you believe in a literal six-day creation and a young earth of approximately 6,000 years. Uh, or, and this is often the way it's set up, or you believe in science and then you probably don't believe in God or at best you're agnostic about that. And you hold to the theory of evolution, you believe in an ancient earth. And those packages tend to go together and create this kind of confrontational relationship. Of course, I want to argue that that binary doesn't have to exist, and that's a large part of what I was suggesting in the previous episode. Um, More generally, I suppose, about the science-religion conversation. Um, So I want to suggest that you can still treat the Bible as a sacred text, 
but that doesn't mean you have to interpret it as a literal six-day creation or a young Earth of approximately 6,000 years. Simultaneously, you can hold to evolutionary theory and trust in the findings of science, fallible as they are, and also believe in some kind of divine reality. So uh, I want to dismantle or at least suggest that that binary should be dismantled, that it's not an either-or choice here. Uh, and one of the things that for people of faith this this either-or choice does is set up this kind of intellectual roadblock. So it becomes this crisis point. So either you hit that point and you're like, I can't listen to that conversation. I can't hear anything about evolution. You're like me in my first year at university scribbling across the top of my biology exam that I don't believe any of this evolution stuff, but I'm just going to give you the answers you want. Um, don't you know God created the world in six days? Uh, good on me. 18-year-old, confident me, all over it. Um, you know, and so, so that's one response. Essentially, you have to say, oh, all of this is some big atheistic conspiracy to try and disprove God. Or if you're someone who's actually bumped into evolutionary theory and found it compelling, then you're like, well, clearly I can't be religious or I certainly can't be Christian because then I have to believe the Bible and... Um, and I can't believe the Bible because the Bible says that God created the world in six days and so on. Uh, so this whole kind of binary either-or situation and with what I suggest is a pretty unhelpful way of reading ancient te Genesis texts has set up this very unhealthy relationship and, and, and created problems for people on both sides of the discussion. So I want to talk briefly about this Genesis account in particular that you find in the Bible. Now, I don't know if you're a Bible reader or not a Bible reader, or maybe you were a Bible reader and now you're not quite sure what to do with the Bible. I know a lot of those people. Um, might even be one myself from time to time. Uh, so, so depending, I don't know your familiarity or, or, or otherwise with the text, but in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, you find this uh, creation account that has found its way into pop, pop culture. So you're, you're probably pretty familiar with aspects of it. Um, you've got God uh, creating each day, uh, day one, uh, separating dark from night and creating day, uh, dark from light and creating day and night. And then day two, separating waters from waters and creating sky and sea. And then day three, separating land from water and creating ocean and land. And then day four, creating the sun and the moon and the stars. And then day five, creating... Um, fish and birds, and then in day six, creating lots of creatures and lots of vegetation and human beings in the image of God. And then day seven, God has a rest because he wants to have a rest. That's the kind of Genesis, that's the first chapter. In fact, there are two accounts of creation at the beginning of Genesis that likely come from two different oral traditions. So Genesis 1 is one account, and that's kind of the... If you, if you think about it as like a film or a movie being filmed, if you like, Genesis 1 is up with God in the heavens somewhere speaking reality into being. Then you get a different account in, in Genesis chapter 2. And in fact, things happen in a slightly different order in Genesis 2 and 3 because it's a different oral tradition. And uh, here you're kind of down on the ground and God walks in the garden and Adam and Eve now. So rather than just human beings being created in God's image, you've got the specific narrative around these creatures, Adam and Eve, the first human beings who then, and then there's the tree of knowledge of good and evil and the fruit and the serpent who talks and all of that. Now, there's a few things to say about these texts. The first is these are not written in the middle of a modern scientific argument. They are written in the ancient Near East, and they're written thousands of years ago. 
So if we approach these texts as modern scientific people saying, as as probably, you know, I think literal literal Christian conservative readers and kind of new atheists and fundamentalist atheists both approach these texts almost on the on the same grounds, which is that these texts must be literal. Obviously, the, the conservative Christian says, therefore, this is how it happened. And the new atheist says, uh, therefore, the Bible is ridiculous and we can't trust it. And I don't think either of those really treat the text for what it is, which is an ancient text speaking in the middle of its own conversation and context. No one's having a conversation thousands of years ago about uh, the scientific processes by which uh, the earth and the creatures on the earth came to be. That's just not a conversation anybody's having, right? It's it's conversations about God or the gods. In most countries, it's in most nations and most tribes and most areas, it's about the gods. And it's about what it means to be human and about what kind of reality we're dealing with. And the question is really about meaning. And it's a part of, you know, when we read these these early Genesis creation texts, it's part of what Peter Enns talks about as being mythologized or theological history. In other words, it's trying, it's, 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 it's like other nations were doing, which is telling mythological stories about the way things came to be. Not therefore to now be ridiculed, but in fact to carry deep meaning about the way they saw reality, God or the gods and human beings. And so um, if we want to read these with insightful eyes, we don't want to we don't just want to go, oh right, okay, so it was in six days, so therefore this is a scientific account of how the world was created. Well that's not what the text is trying to do. You know, these these creation accounts likely first emerge uh, among the Israelite people, the ancient Israelites. Uh, after the exodus from Egypt and slavery. So if you know the story at all, you know that the the descendants of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the nation of Israel, and the way the story goes, find themselves in Egypt in some kind of slavery and bondage and then escape. Um, and these oral traditions emerge of these creation stories, uh, probably gathered into the form that we have them now, much later in the story during the exile in Babylon after Jerusalem is destroyed um, hundreds of years later. And so perhaps in order to understand how this creation story held meaning for these ancient Israelite people, it's helpful to consider the way it contrasts with the creation stories of surrounding nations in the ancient Near East because other nations in the ancient Near East had creation stories too. And so when these Genesis creation texts and stories emerge, they are in contrast with the stories of the nations around them. So, for example, if we were to read from the ancient Babylonian creation myth, We hear about the god Marduk who um, crushed and killed the god, the the goddess Tiamat and then took the corpse of Tiamat and split it in half and used one half to create the sky and one half to create the sea. And then Marduk uh, comes up with a plan to create human beings and he says, uh, this is from this text, blood I will mass and cause bones to be, I will establish a savage Man shall be his name, verily savage man I will create. He shall be charged with the service of the gods that they might be at ease. So here we have this story of the Babylonians, whom the Israelites are in exile uh, among, who have this story of creation that's filled with violence. Uh, the sky and the sea, for example, is 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 created through the 
split corpse of a defeated goddess. Uh, the human beings then are created as savages and they're created as savages to do the works of the gods so that the gods can have a break. Uh, there's another ancient Mesopotam- Mesopotamian uh, creation story, the Atrahasis epic, which talks about the humans being created to carry the load of the gods and so they take one god and they kill that god and then they use the blood of that god to create human beings to do the work. And so what you actually see is there's these profound contrasts. When the, when the early Israelites begin to tell their stories of creation, uh, they in fact don't tell a story of violence. They don't tell a story of conflict and they don't tell a story of human beings being created from blood and from slaughter to do the work of the gods. Instead, the early Genesis stories offer this, offer this quite countercultural and subversive way of talking about um, what God is doing, what creation is, what the world is about. They talk about a God who creates this creation that keeps being named good. And so there's this kind of rhythm. There's, Genesis 1 reads like this ancient Hebrew kind of poetic narrative. There's this rhythm to it that says, you know, and then there was evening and morning the first day, and then God saw that it was good, and there was evening and morning the second day, and then God saw that it was good. So there's this kind of rhythm and flow to the story. Uh, the first half of Genesis 1 is about taking chaos and then creating space and order, and then the second half, days 4, 5, and 6, are about the filling of that space with life and with vitality and with uh, with creatures and so on. And so uh, there's this kind of beautiful story played out in Genesis 1 in contrast with the kind of violent stories that we see amongst some of the surrounding nations at the time. And that tells you something about a particular vision of the world and of life. And as a people who had left slavery in Egypt and who now find themselves much later in exile in another foreign empire, the concept of humankind themselves, right, being created in the image of God is deeply meaningful because they're not defined by their identity as slaves It's not only the kings or the pharaohs or the emperors who are like gods. No, what the ancient Israelites said, and it's it's a profound insight for its time, is that all human beings are created in God's image. In other words, all are affirmed, all in some ways image the divine, all carry validity, equality, some sense of human right embedded within this story. And so in the Jewish and Christian scriptures, to be human is this beautiful and sacred thing. In the Genesis 2 creation story, the creation of Adam is this fusion of earth and divine breath. And so rather than let us create some savages to do the work, uh, Adam here and then Eve are both created from the sense of overflow of desire for belonging and relationship and fellowship. And, um, And Adam and Eve here, I don't think are meant to be read, can't be read as literal people in this story. I mean, the story contains all the elements of ancient mythology. You've got a talking snake, you've got a tree of knowledge of good and evil that holds all of this kind of magical power to it. You've got um, all sorts of stuff going on here that's clearly a good signal to us, I think, that we're reading ancient mythology. And yet there's deep and profound and subversive and countercultural meaning embedded in these stories that I think still speak to us today about how do we see the world? What kind of world do we see? What do we see when we see human creatures? And do we ask important questions about what the purpose, about what it might mean to be human, about the beauty and sacredness that might be hidden among creation itself? So if we try and read Genesis 1 and 2 as these literal scientific descriptions, then we miss the point of the text 
We take basically a bunch of modern questions and impose them upon an ancient mythological story. So rather than trying to approach it like that, we can actually approach it as a true, what, what C.S. Lewis would refer to as a true myth, right? Which is not to say literally true in the sense of, in some kind of scientific way, but mythologically true in the sense that it carries deep and true and profound meaning for us. So if we kind of settle those terms, that that's what we're doing when we read that kind of text. And then we put that alongside the scientific evidence for evolution. And, you know, I know you can, you can stumble across um, creation science websites. And Look, if you are a, a literal six-day creationist, good on you. Go for your life. Um, I just, when, when I read the scientific evidence for evolution, for an ancient earth, and if I allow myself to look at it and, and, and not defend it from some point of view of, oh my, not defend the Bible and say, this, this scientific evidence can't possibly be the case because of what the Bible says. If I recognize that, in fact, the Bible's not even having this conversation, it's having a totally different conversation when we read those Genesis stories. Then when I examine the scientific evidence, you're able to see that there is just overwhelming evidence for an ancient earth that's billions of years old. There's overwhelming evidence for an ancient, ancient universe. There's overwhelming evidence for the evolution of species, um, for the, and not just, and, and, you know, the kind of the fossil records are, are one aspect of that, but we're way beyond kind of the fossil records in terms of our analysis of evolutionary theory now, especially now that we understand genetics and the way that DNA works, the way that genetic mutations function. And then you look at the, the genetic similarities um, between species and not just other species, but human beings and other species too. And not just genetic similarities, there's, there are particular you know, nuances and particularities about chromosomal structures and uh, particular genetic coding that you can see has, has been held within different, line, different species lines that the human beings share with common ancestors. And this kind of evidence is just, it's just impossible to ignore. Now, that, does that mean that science understands everything about how evolution worked? No. Of course, they're going to keep stumbling into new realizations and uh, new evidence all the time. But the level of evidence here for the notion that there has been this little very long and slow, progressive, linear uh, continuity between... Uh, very first kind of signs of life through to the incredible complexity and diversity of life we have now, of which human beings are a part. The, the evidence is just incredibly clear on this. Now, of course, if you're not reading Genesis as a, as a science text, this is no problem for us. This is, in fact, something to be fascinated by, something to be interested in, something to allow ourselves to accept and to explore. It does mean we have to let go of some constructs of Christian faith that have been built on a very literalist notion of some of these Genesis texts. So this idea that creation itself was at some point perfect and then the whole of creation underwent this kind of fall and corruption of some kind that then changed everything and then essentially our struggle is to get back to that perfect state. I think we have to let go of that kind of construct. Of faith, And in fact, recognize that creation is never named as perfect in the biblical text itself. It's named as good. 
And so rather than seeing this kind of perfect creation that, that then bumps into problems later on because of humans' sin, um, we can see a good creation that has potential and capacity and capability that exists in a way to allow life to flourish and emerge and diversify and multiply. And then to take seriously, and we're going to get onto this a little more in the next episode, what it is that human being, what role human beings play within this world that we live in and that we inhabit. And why it is that we talk about corruption or brokenness or sin or whatever language we give to what human beings are capable of doing in negative terms that put that contrast with what human beings are capable of doing in quite sacred and beautiful terms. So if we don't have this kind of perfect thing we're trying to get back to, actually what we discover even theologically is that humanity along with creation itself is moving forward toward Something Evolution itself tells us that all of creation is continually bringing forth the new rather than simply the static and fixed reality. And humanity is in fact integrated and a part of this process. And I think for Christians then, the idea of the Jesus story, right, is the sense of some kind of divine affirmation of humanness itself. The idea that the divine is to be found in the human Christ I mean, that's a, that's a mystery of some kind, and the New Testament authors even speak of it as such. And in fact, as Christ himself suggests, we are also to see the presence of this divine Christ in the eyes and faces of the other. And so Jesus becomes this image of the kind of humans we, we aspire to become as we follow Christ and are in some way caught up in the way of divine love. Then this whole construct and even evolution itself allows us to acknowledge the value of other creatures, of our connection to the environment that has implications for the way we treat the environment and other creatures that live in it. Even our relationship to the environment itself, maybe we need to think about that language rather than relating to the environment. We are in some way a part of it. We are made of dust and breath. Well, this invites all sorts of reflections around how we might relate to the world that we are in fact a part of. Even as we've got this little eight and a half month, can you believe he's eight and a half months old now, our little boy Rufus, and he is born into this world as this tiny little baby, and then for six months all he had was milk. Milk, oxygen, sunlight, um, the milk that comes from his mum, that came from the food that she ate, that came from the ground, and he grows from this tiny little baby into now, still a baby, but this kind of rumbling, tumbling, crawling, standing little package of joy that we have uh, in our house. He is a part of the earth. He is made up of dust and breath. Now, what I think this does prompt us, obviously, to think about is what to do with Christian notions of humanness, then, of the uniqueness of the human creature, of what it means to speak of human beings as the image of God, and also to think about humans as deeply embodied creatures. We're not spirits that have sort of floated down from the sky and inhabiting some kind of physical shell. We are, in fact, a part of this very ecosystem as embodied beings. We might even say we're animals, right? And yet, what do we do with the language of soul? What do we do with the sense of consciousness that we experience? 
is there something more going on in the human experience? How does evolution help us to understand the way our own brains and bodies behave? How does this all intersect with faith and spirituality in ways that might actually meet us in meaningful ways? So many questions, so much conversation to emerge out of this kind of paradigm, this invitation to explore. And I think if we're not scared of the conversation, then what we find is there's all sorts of richness to be found here. And so some of these questions I'm going to start to unpack in the next episode. Uh, So for now, that's going to bring us to a bit of a closure point. But in the next episode, I want to start to think about humanness and evolution and what does it mean to be human and what does embodied consciousness really mean and how does spirituality meet us there. So that's going to be next time. Don't, of course, forget to check us out on Patreon, visit social media, go to intheshift.com. And thanks as always to Reese Michelle for his assistance in audio production, sound quality management. We'll see you next time on In The Shift.